cut for the children's books. And what about David and Goliath? Why is that one in there? I've asked myself. Uh, maybe because we figure David was just a little kid, or he's, he's just very small compared to Goliath. And so that idea, that relatability to children just seems to be baked into the story. Uh, some Bible stories we don't include for a lot of obvious reasons in kids' books. But I, I want to challenge this idea that the kind of the classic David and Goliath plot today a little bit. And, and what really shook me out of that was when I saw this detail that he cuts his head off and then began to look at other details that weren't really part of the children's story, visiting them in the text of Scripture. And so I'm kind of going to move backwards through the story and point out the things that at least I didn't notice before. I want to revisit this story of fight and faith for the purpose of encouragement. And um, you're in a season of transition, you have a search committee. I often speak at churches that don't have pastors. And I want to encourage those churches I'm often asked to preach just exactly in that environment. So I bring a message of encouragement and emboldenment and uh, and maybe even a little uh, hot firebrand. Get moving, get moving. Uh, But I want to encourage you today because it feels like we're on the back foot. It can feel like the church, that Christian culture is sort of the, if you want to believe the classic David and Goliath plot, we're the David. We're the little guy in the story. I can bring a lot of statistics. Um, uh, I was talking with a guy in the Alliance denomination. This statistic just surprised me because there's a lot of ones out there. This one surprised me that after the pandemic, that denomination, uh, 20% of their pastors resigned after that. Just one in five. Just like that. Whoa. That caught my attention. Um, Another statistic that caught my attention, there's a sociologist in the States named Aaron Wren. And uh, he came up with an interesting conclusion to some research. This is how he put it. He said, in the United States, uh, Christians became the bad guys in 2014. I'd never heard it put like that before. We became the bad guy. People were fairly neutral to us until about 2014. And He has a research study that sort of supports this idea, but we became the bad guys. So we've got about a decade of being the bad guys in culture. Uh, Another one that that continues to be talking about is religious nuns are on the rise. Not the ones that wear black and white, but nuns as in they have no, or or on a census form, they, they mark down religion, none. No religious affiliation. That that is on the rise. On the rise. Used to be that people would come to the, to the Christmas Eve service. Or they would come to Easter. Maybe, maybe the family expected them to. Or maybe they just needed to justify the tie that they got for Christmas or something. But now, even that. Even that has fallen away. We have a month now that's kind of enshrined in our culture. A colorful month that celebrates a lot of things which, you know, are what they are. But it's organized around a word 
that has great theological significance. It's a word called pride. We, we, we just we seem to be on the back foot culturally. We might seem like we are the, the David in the story. But I want to suggest to you uh, a little bit of a different take on the, the Dan, da, Daniel, the David and Goliath story. A little bit of a different reading that suggests this idea. David, I don't think, was really the underdog in the story. And neither might we be. And I'll, I'll, try, to, I'll try to point that out. That David's encounter facing a giant also encourages us that our abilities and our experiences really do matter. And that each one of us has a significant gift for a significant calling. So let's go to the story. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read verses. I'm going to point to verses. It's up to you if you want to follow along in 1 Samuel 17. And uh, I say this in class from time to time. I do have two students here, so they're keeping an eye on me. Uh, the end of a story is as good a place to begin as any, I think. 1 Samuel 17.51, it caps off the episode. I'm reading here from the New Revised Standard Version, which, which reads a little different. There's, in other texts, they sort of try to settle the difficulty that I pointed out. Does he kill him with a stone? Does he kill him with a sword? But, but 1 Samuel 17.51. Then David ran over and stood over the Philistine. He grasped his sword drew it out of its sheath, and killed him. Then he cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. We also find out later in a political move that David took the head with him to Jerusalem. Different kind of political stunt, perhaps. But that was the end of the battle. That was the end of Goliath. That was the end of the Philistines' army, And their defiance of the living God. But what about those children's stories? Why do we remember? Why is it so so important in the text that he killed him with a stone? If he kills him with a sword, if a sword is part of the end of the story, what's the deal with the stones and the sling? Like I said, in verse 50, it's almost like there's two endings to the story. In verse 50... It says, David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and stone, striking down the Philistine and killing him. There was no sword in David's hand. Okay, so there's, there's a stone and then it, he kills him with a stone and then he kills him with a sword. And it's like, well, how do we blend this together? I, I think you'd be right to wonder about this because a major theme in the story is that David does not use a a sword. But more than that, specifically, he refuses to use a sword. If we step back again in the text, verse 47, David's thoughts on the matter. He shouts out that all of this will be done so that all in this assembly may know that the Lord does not save by sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. 
So it's kind of a, a point that the sword and the spear, the, the blade-based combat is not really what's going on here. But we know that he didn't use nothing. We all remember the songs. We remember the stories. And he didn't just throw the rocks at Goliath, did he? And he didn't just collect one random one to get it done with. The initial question is is probably settled fairly easily, but it begs some more questions. The initial question is, was it a sword or was it a stone? Well, it was probably a sword because it's easier to cut a head off with a sword than with a stone. There's a tool that's used to cut and there's a tool that's used to hurl. But these details run side by side in the story. It's in the text, it says, he kills him with a stone, he kills him with a sword. Well, another question arises then. Does David initially refuse the sword and armor to make some grand theological point about God's deliverance? Or does he refuse it because it didn't fit? And then at the risk of getting him ahead of myself, which I always take. Did David use the sling because it was a less effective weapon? Some kind of toy of a child? Or did he use it because it was more deadly? Nobody's questioning whether or not Goliath was deadly, formidable. His size, his arsenal, his confidence... Well, he lived up to his reputation. The first description of him in verses 4 to 7 reads like this. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was nine foot six. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armored with a coat of mail. The weight of the coat was 125 pounds. He had greaves of bronze on his legs and a javelin, although this is sometimes translated as a scimitar, which is a weapon like a sword, a scimitar of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam and the spear's head weighed 15 pounds of iron and his shield bearer went before him. Now, the size stands out to us. The weight of all of this metal stands out to us. What I, what I miss and what we might miss as we read this is that his weapons and his armor come from a variety of different armies and time periods. What, what the author is showing here is that he was successful in a variety of battles against a variety of opponents And when he defeated them, he collected what they had as trophies for himself. He was a walking billboard of his own success because of all of the variety. So size and variety. And then another detail that I think we can miss. I I missed this so many times. The shield bearer went before him. I always envisioned the the snivelly little squire from the medieval movies, the little kid that is a glorified coat rack who just holds the shield up. Here, Mr. Goliath. The shield bearer was part of his team. 
He trained with this man who was shorter than him. I suppose everybody was shorter than him. Anybody could be Goliath's shield bearer. He was part of the team. He stood out in front to defend against, do you know what? Long-range attacks. So that Goliath could fight to his strength, which was close quarters, blade-based combat. The shield bearer was to defend against rocks. He was set up for that kind of combat. All of this, all of this might, the size, the variety, the training, this is what fuels his arrogant challenge. Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill with me, then we will be your servants. Notice he says we there. He won't be part of the picture. He's he's making promises for other people here. If he kills me, we will be your servants. Okay. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, Today I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man that we may fight together. Now, I had, I've given this message, I developed this and, and thought about it. And, and quite recently, I, I read an article in Christianity Today. It seems like a very random choice for a big evangelical magazine. But they ran an article asking this question. Was David a boy at the time he fought Goliath? I picture it. I've always pictured him as this little boy because that's what the storybooks showed. He's a little boy. And the pieces fit together in the storybook because you get this idea that he's a little boy and he's just swimming in Saul's armor. Do you remember the qualification that the people thought made Saul a good choice for king? Does anybody remember? I know it's, it's very random, but do you recall? Yeah, he was tall. The qualification for leadership is height at that moment. So Saul is a tall guy. We get this, get this picture, and maybe you don't have this picture, and that's fine, but we get this picture perhaps of put on the armor, and he's just this little boy trying to fit in a tall man's armor. Why, why would Saul do that? It just, it's kind of preposterous. Now, there's wording there. It didn't, it didn't fit him. But in verse 39, where it says that, fit is not exactly the, the right translation. It's, it's more, he it was not used to them. Like it didn't fit him in terms of, yeah, this is not my regular. This is not what I'm used to when I go out running and and fighting. Instead of it didn't fit me in terms of size. There's a suggestion that's kind of hiding under here uh, that I think is an interesting one. Is that it probably fit David. And what Saul wanted was perhaps in that moment to be thought of 
as the person who stepped out against Goliath. The armies are standing back in valleys. People are watching from a vantage point. That looks like Saul. Saul stepping out. He might have wanted the credit. And, And so it's not so preposterous that he put his equipment on a man so that he was thought of as going out and doing battle. And maybe the rumors go out, things like that. But it's hard to really picture David as a boy. Now, there's something about the timeline as well. But you know what? The scholar went back to a weird detail in the text. Look at the cheese. He says, look at the cheese. Cheese? What's that? If you go to verses 17 and 18 of the same chapter, David carried loaves and ten cheeses to the front of the battle. Now, they look back at the way that, that this was done. They weighed the cheese, theoretically. This is how big the cheese wheel would be. This is how big this was. David is going on by foot. He's traveling this far and this fast and this far. And the scholar comes to this conclusion. I I love it. It stuck out to me in this article. David's not a boy. He's a marine. He is carrying weight on his back that a special forces candidate would carry during a selection process of running through hills and carrying weight. David is a youth. He is a young man, but he is... He is strong at this point. Goliath does call him a boy. You send me a boy, you treat me like a dog. Goliath had in his mind his situation and what he brought to it. He was quite competent on the battlefield. He was quite competent with propaganda of saying things that might change the tone of the battle. But it appears that he had misread the situation before him. So there is David. He does not have the armor of Saul. He does not have the sword or the spear to meet Goliath. But instead has something else. Now maybe you've heard in in your days this phrase. Don't bring a knife to a gunfight. Goliath brought a knife. He brought a few knives. And they were big knives. But that saying is such because knives can be bested. A sling. Now again, thinking like a child, reading the story as a child, a slingshot. Oh yeah, yeah, put it in here and you pull it back and it's got that that rubber stuff that lasts about two summers. Unless you put grease or something on it and... Oh, my brother and I used to whip rocks past each other's head just to hear that sound. Woo! Yeah, that, Maybe I did get hit and I don't even remember. I mean, that's sort of what, how it would work out. Well, this sling, and you've you've probably learned about this. I was uh, speaking in Valley View, and of course, you know Valley View, like, oh yeah, we've had kids that have made those around here. Long leather strap, three of them, and then you've got that pouch, and you're whipping it around this way. So you're picking up way more speed than just the elasticity. 
you're picking up this kind of rotational speed. And then they were able to let go with one finger. The one strap falls by the side, opens up that cradle. And with enormous accuracy, incredible accuracy, they can hit things like hair or put out a a candle or something like that. It was a recognized tool. It was a recognized weapon, a defensive weapon, an offensive weapon. This is what David had used and mastered. So I come back to this question. Did David refuse the sword and armor to make a greater theological point? Or because it didn't fit? And the answer is yes. Both. See, I think that King Saul and Goliath And maybe us, we fail to understand who the true underdog on the field was that day. Because they were stuck in this old mindset of size and steel. Now the typical question that comes out of a story like this, it's it's not a bad question, but the typical question is how can faith in God help you overcome the giant-sized obstacles in your life? And it's a good question because it emphasizes faith. This is a story about faith, but not to the detriment of fight. That question is a good question, but it misses, I think, that David didn't just bring faith to the battlefield, he also brought fight. He brought his sling. And five stones. And a strong background in knocking out lions. Goliath, yeah, he had a winning record. He put it on display with him as he walked into the battlefield. But David had a winning record as well. His confidence to stand up against Goliath was fueled by his own track record of saving cowering flocks from brazen enemies. When David is told that he can't, he responds that he can. So we look at verses 34 to 37. Now this is written in a kind of a a third person language because it's a respectful tone So I've just taken and made it first person so that it sounds, we can kind of identify who he's talking about a little little bit more clearly. Um, But David said to Saul, I used to keep sheep for my father. And whenever a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went after it and struck it down, rescuing the lamb from its mouth. And if it turned against me, I would catch it by the jaw Strike it down and kill it. I've killed both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, since he has defied the armies of the living God. And now, in the text, he combines fight with faith. Confidence in his God with a competence in his ability. And he says this, The Lord who saved me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will save me from the hand of this Philistine. 
So Saul said to David. (laughs) Now, there's so many ways to inflect our language. I don't know how he said it. I know what he said. I don't know how he said it. This is how I imagine how he said the words. Go. And may the Lord be with you. And the Lord was with him. Because the Lord had been with him before. Here he is in the valley of Elah. But it is just another example of what he can do with David and all the other valleys that David has walked before. So here I'm going to bring it together. I don't think that David chose the sling because it was a less effective weapon. See, I don't think that that's part of the story, that, that David had to be pathetic or preposterous in order to highlight that God rescued him, that this was silly, that this was never going to ever work out. And the only possible way that this could work out is this enormous gulf that God fills, and it's like, oh, God did all the work. I don't think that's necessary to highlight what God did on that day. The story is all about faith, absolutely. But faith that met a threat with fight. Confidence that was expressed in competence. It was not that a tiny boy with a toy gun was made effective by faith. It was that faith brought a superior warrior with a more powerful weapon to that fight. And David had faith. He came with faith. Faith is what brought him to that battlefield. Because he had a history of faith. He knew that this God shows up. He had experienced God's mighty hand through his own hand as he rescued little sheep from enemies. And one of my students put it this way. I think this is a great line. Maybe he himself was a little surprised when he killed the giant with the first shot. But he knew he could do it in five. Now some have suggested to me also that uh, Goliath had four brothers. So the, the other four stones were just for the rest of them. But he brought it to the battlefield. I think we relate to David as kids when we're kids... We see him through those eyes because those are the eyes that we have. And the David and Goliath plot just gets repeated and repeated. But David wasn't the underdog. You're not the underdog when you come onto the battlefield with faith in the living God. You're not pathetic when you know the living God. Oh sure, Goliath could lift a lot of weight And that's what we're given is a bunch of weights. But David holds in his hand competence with his weapon and confidence in his God. Now I just want to bring this home. I I realize we just clicked on to, oh no, never mind. We have a few minutes left. I thought that was my 12 o'clock warning. We We are 
are prone to think, I am prone to think that we're on the back foot a little bit. That culture is big and culture is scary. We're prone to think that we're the underdog because we get this idea that David was this pathetic little kid with a toy. But he wasn't. A task before us is huge. What we're being asked to do, if I can boil it down to, to one sentence, we're being asked to proclaim a name, a name of Jesus to a world who wants him dead. They wanted him dead then, they want him dead now. We are suffering and serving under tyrants who would rather just grind us into dust. We are, as Peter says, trying to stay alert and resist the devil. Someone described here as a roaring lion prowling around looking for someone to devour. 1 Peter 5, 8-9. The threats are real, they're ferocious, and the sacrifice cuts us to the core. And the thing about it too is, we could talk about being easy. David's task was not easy, but it was straightforward. There's the target. Put the mineral on the target. It's a straightforward kind of thing. Not easy, I would cower, but it's straightforward. The task that we're asked to do is not quite as straightforward. They're not, they're not enemies out there. There are people to love. Paul answers this kind of underdog question, I think, in Romans 8.31. It's a rhetorical question. If God is for us, who can be against us? Paul. Paul was had every reason to be on the back foot, persecuted, pursued. He asks this question with the assumption that no one can stand against us. In the end, they do not stand. No one can defy the living God. No one can come against what he has established in his word and in history and get away with it. That's who you are. And so the mission takes on a similar characteristic. I'll read these words from 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5. And what I'm hearing in here is a vague echo of exactly what David did not take up with the sword and the spear. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5. Indeed, we live as human beings, but we do not wage war according to human standards. For the weapons of our warfare are not merely human, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every proud obstacle raised up against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. The character of our mission does not meet the threat pound for pound. It does not mirror the threat because our weapons are not just human weapons. They also have a different character. Our weapons, our superior weapon on the battlefield is is starting with the confidence we put in our God. In Ephesians 3, Paul said, we root ourselves and ground ourselves in his love. 
more and more we know who he is, then more and more we know who we are and his immeasurable greatness and the power for us who believe. It's not an equal playing field. It's not a fair fight when you have the living God on your side. This battlefield scene, actually, you notice how no one's ever made a major motion picture of David and Goliath? Because it wasn't a fair fight. There was no struggle. He didn't get knocked down and go have to time travel or collect his buddies or find, well, I guess he does find five stones. Well, anyway, it's not a fair fight. It would be the lamest movie. The first shot wins. Oh, hmm. Actually, I would love a movie that short now. I don't know. I can't handle these three and a half theater movies. I can't do it. Three and a half hours in the theater. I don't, I don't even go. I see it. I'm like, nope. Give me a 78-minute movie, and I can get in, and I can get back home for bedtime. Well, anyway, sorry. It's, it's like I think of 2 Thessalonians 2.8. The lawless one wreaks havoc on the world, and then Jesus comes and finishes him with a breath. It's not a fair fight when the living God is on your side. We don't use weapons of the earth. And, and I think, I have a lot of passages here, but I, it comes down to this. Jesus gives a hard instruction. Harder, I think, than use a sling and not a sword. This is it. Bless and do not curse. I think that captures it. They come at you with a curse. You respond with a blessing. That's hard. You come at people that hate you and you offer them reasonableness, gentleness, even forgiveness. That is not a human weapon. It exchanges a tired out old weapon for something that might actually win the battle. Jesus won the battle with humility and obedience. He overcame the world with things that did not make sense to the world. So I challenge you to think. David brought his sling. Our sling, our weapons are of a different character, but we could still ask ourselves the question, what's the right fit for you? What's your sling? I'm watching my little kids grow up, and our son Chester is an extrovert, and I don't know how it happened. I did my best to sequester him and, and, and be in my own little place. I'm an, I'm an introvert. My wife's an introvert. I think our daughter Ivy is an introvert. Chester loves people. I had to pull some fingernails to get me to a party over the other night and we were standing there and we were getting our hot chocolate and Chester comes up to me. He says, Dad, today is my favorite day because we can, and he gestured, we can all get together. And I was like, boy, oh boy, that boy's an extrovert. He goes to the park and by the end of just a random park, 
We have had multiple children come up to us and say, can Chester come on vacation with us? Thanks for asking. No. What's your name? He's just got that. It's just his fit. I can't wait to see what he does with it. We all have a fit. We all have been, and these are the words in uh, 1 Corinthians 12, we have been activated, or the Spirit has allotted and activated our gifts. These are our fit. But not just that. If we go to Philippians 2 or we go to uh, 2 Corinthians, we could go to James as well. What are the experiences? What are the valleys that you have walked through? Where God has shown up for you and then you can show up for someone else. The, the encouragement, the comfort, the fellowship. What has made your heart tender? These are the things that can be then turned into the weapons that fit us. And they are such a different character than the weapons of the world. Our experiences, our trials, the places God has met us. These are our fit. There's no better time to test your fit than when you don't have a pastor. I, I happen to think that you should maybe not have a pastor more often. It, it does something to a church. People step up. I can do that. I have something. A pastor is a great thing to have, but, but people, people come out, well, and you see their fit. So I, I want to leave you with this. These two ideas just to, to, to bring it home. The one who has confidence in the living God, and together... We are those who are not the underdog. No one who has confidence in the living God is the underdog. And secondly, take seriously your own competence. What is your fit? And how can you bring that about? It's hard to give back a blessing in face of a curse. But boy, that is the weapon by which he has overcome the world. I simply want to pray. Uh, I, I don't I hate re-preaching the sermon in a prayer. I don't, I don't want to do it for you, so I'm using Paul's words here. This will be the prayer that I offer from Ephesians 3, 14 to 21. Lord, we bow our knees before you. Every family in heaven and on earth takes your name. And I pray, along with Paul and many through the centuries, this same prayer. That according to the riches of your glory, you may grant that we would be strengthened in our inner beings with power through your spirit. And that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith as we are being rooted and grounded in love. Help us, Lord, even to have the power to comprehend together what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. Four dimensions in a three-dimensional world and to know your love that surpasses knowledge. We need your ability to know this so that we may be filled with all fullness. Now, 
to you who are at work within us with power, would you be able to accomplish abundantly far more than we can ask or imagine? And we give you glory in your name and in the name of Jesus Christ forever and ever. Amen.